Well, you may be seated. I was debating whether to start a new series this morning on our 32nd anniversary. I was going to title it Prophetic Worship and Other Lies Taught in the Church. I apologize if, uh, if I just stepped on somebody's favorite doctrine. But it's early in the year, so I figured we better get that out of the way right up front. But, of course, the Lord wouldn't let me do that. I was uh, hoping that it was of him, but it wasn't. You know what that's like. So I'm going to start this morning in Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. Verse 6. I believe Paul is the author of the book of Hebrews. It's certainly his message. He's talking about Jesus being our high priest. Even though he was not of the natural lineage of the Levites that the high priest always had to come from. But he's talking about him being the high priest of our profession and being the go-between or the mediator between us and God. So in verse 6 he said, But now hath he, Jesus, obtained a more excellent ministry. By how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. Now, of course, he's writing to the Jews, talking about the better covenant being the better covenant than the law of Moses, the old covenant. Skip down with me to verse 10. He said, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith, A new covenant hath he made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. I want to also turn back to the Old Testament that um, Paul is referring to writing or just quoted really in those verses in Hebrews chapter 8. In Isaiah chapter chapter 43, verse 25, here's the part that, uh, that Paul just quoted in the New Testament. Isaiah 43, 25, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake. Now notice that. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins. Psalm 103 says that as far as the east is from the west, that's how far God separates us from our sins. Now I've read these verses of scripture hundreds of times. Well, let me go ahead and read verse 26 and I'll make those comments. He said, put me in remembrance. Let us plead together. Declare thou that thou mayest be justified. I've read these verses of scripture hundreds of times, probably thousands of times. And I have no way, maybe hundreds of times I've referred to these, uh, uh, particularly verse 26, about put me in remembrance. And it's a great scripture to talk about praying the word. It's a great scripture to talk about the principle, which is obviously true, about bringing God's word back to him. Put me in remembrance. Remind me of what my word says. Now, God's not forgetful. He's not saying, make sure you tell me what I said so that I can decide to keep it. He's talking about putting me in remembrance. But I came across a, a, a translation that I'd never seen before just a couple of days ago. And it said this. It translated verse 25 just virtually identically. I am an even I even I am the he that trans, that blots out thy sins for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins. But then it said verse twenty six a little bit different. It said, Put me in remembrance of this. 
Put me in remembrance of this. Let us plead together. Declare thou that thou mayest be justified. Just one one word in that verse was changed or altered from the King James. Put me in remembrance of this. Now he's got to be talking about if we interpret it that way and accept that interpretation, which, like I said, is a principle to bring the word of God back to him in any and every respect. But since it is a principle, why wouldn't it apply to what he just said in verse 25? It would have to. So he said, I'm the one that will not remember your sins anymore for mine own sake, God said, for my sake, not your sake. It would seem like it would be for our sakes and not for his. But God cannot look at unrighteousness. He cannot look upon unrighteousness. Unrighteousness cannot stand in his presence. You remember in the Old Testament, Moses asked to see God's face. God said, you can't see me and live. But then he made arrangements. He put him in the cleft of the rock, put his hand over him, and let his glory pass by. We know also that the New Testament tells us that when we make Jesus the Lord of our lives, we become the righteousness of God in him. He was made to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We know that if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature or a new creation. Old things pass away and all things become new. Well, the old things have to do with the sinful nature. And all things become new. So when God says that he will not remember our sins anymore and blots them out, removes them. The word blotteth really means, literally means in Hebrew, to destroy, to abolish, or to erase. To destroy, to abolish, or to erase. So when God says that I blot your sins out or remove your sins, literally, for mine own sake, he wants us along with other things in the word, I'm not saying this is the most important thing or the only thing by any means. But he wants us to put him in remembrance that we've been made righteous, that we've been made the righteousness of God in him. Why would God want us to remind him of that? There's only one answer. And that is he wants us to know it for ourselves. I would suggest for your consideration that the sense of unrighteousness, the feeling of unrighteousness, the condemnation of unrighteousness is probably the greatest thing that keeps us from walking in the earth in the way that Jesus provided for us and doing the works that he did while he was here. I know it's the one thing that I've had to struggle with more than anything else. So he said, put me in remembrance. Let us plead together, declare thou that thou mayest be justified. Now he's certainly not saying that our confession is the thing that makes us to be justified because he's not talking about the new birth here. He's talking about justified. Here's this word that means to make right, to put in right place, to put in right order. He's telling us that if we will make the business of our lives to focus on the fact that we've been made righteous, to focus on the fact that our sins have been removed, that we are new creatures in Christ, old things have passed away. If we'll focus on those, then we'll be able to walk in that right condition that God restored man to after the fall. Through the work of Jesus. Now look with me also at Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54. Beginning in verse 14. It says in righteousness shall you be established. In righteousness shalt thou be established. The word established means to stand strong upon a foundation. Righteousness is that foundation that enables us to stand strong. In righteousness shalt thou be established. Thou shalt be far from oppression. For thou shalt not fear. And from terror. In other words, far from terror. For it shall not come near or nigh unto thee. 
Now, you know as well as I know that the Bible tells us as Christians, those who have been born again, made new creatures in Christ Jesus, the Bible teaches us in the New Testament not to be entangled again in sin. It tells us not to be entangled again with the snares of sin. The Bible tells us to lay aside the sin and the weights that so easily beset us, things that hold us back and out of the fellowship with God and keep us and prevent us from doing his will here on the earth. So when he talks about declare thou that thou mayest be justified in Isaiah 43, he's got to be talking about walking in or entering into what righteousness provided for us. Has to be. Here he says righteousness is the foundation that enables us to stand strong against the attacks of the enemy, against all the forces of evil. But now the Bible tells us as well that we've been delivered from the power of Satan, the kingdom of darkness, and translated into the kingdom of his dear son. Again, he's got to be talking about believers. They're They're the only ones that have been delivered from the power of darkness. So we know that the place of righteousness is available to us. Well, why doesn't the church walk in it then? The Bible warns us very specifically not to neglect the great salvation that we have. And folks, I would submit to you that the plan of God that brought about the redemptive work of Jesus, that made us new creatures and and facilitated the exchange where Jesus took our sins and we took his nature, which is righteousness. I would submit to you that those things came about because God has devised and provided for a perfect redemption. A perfect redemption. It's not a man-sized redemption. It's a God-sized redemption. It's not a redemption that fits a particular church's doctrine. It's a redemption that has made a way for everybody who receives Jesus to become sons of God, children of God. It's a God-sized redemptive plan. Nothing was left out. There's no area whatsoever. No crack. No possibility of failure if we walk in God's perfect redemption. Well, what keeps us from doing that? Again, it seems to me that the number one cause is not being convinced of who we are in him. The number one cause is the sense of guilt or condemnation because of things that we've done as Christians and as believers. Skip down with me to verse 17. Still in Isaiah 54. Isaiah said by the Holy Ghost, no weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. Now what tongue is he talking about condemning? Every tongue that rises up against you in condemnation thou shalt condemn. What's he talking about? Well, certainly there are situations that occur in our lives where people stand against us and people speak ill of us or or whatever. We all know that those situations do occur. But the greatest tongue that you're going to have to condemn is yours. How do we do that? By declaring our righteousness. Put me in remembrance of this. God said. Put me in remembrance that I have removed. Abolished. Destroyed. Erased. Eradicated your sin. Put me in remembrance of that. Now why why again does he want us to put him in remembrance of that? Not for his sake. But for ours. Because the more we confess that, the more we determine to speak that into our lives, the more we become 
accustomed to what the truth of the word says in that regard. And the more able we are to walk in that. The Bible seems to be telling us that if we will come to the place where we know, really know, really understand the righteousness of of Jesus that has been made unto us, then there's no possibility for failure. No possibility for failure. Well, then if we're failing in our lives, we know where to look, don't we? If we're walking in failure, if we're walking in such a way where sin still has us in bondage, then assuming that these scriptures are true, accepting these scriptures to be true, tells us what to work on. Now, it seems to me, I know this has been true in my life in the past, it seems to me that we make our confession about things that, by and large, generally, maybe not in every case, but generally, we make our confessions about things in our lives that have to do with the natural part of our lives. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with confessing things about finances or provision or what Jesus did for us, taking the chastisement of our peace upon him with his stripes we're healed. Nothing wrong with confessing for healing. That's what the Bible tells us to do. Nothing wrong with confessing what the Bible says about God's provision and so forth. But how many of us really take the time to confess who we are in Christ? Seems to me to be a minority. You may have heard heard it said or read in other places that there are over 130 times in the New Testament where the Bible talks about us being in him, being in Christ. 130 times in the New Testament. It seems to be a recurring theme. I look back at the, um, what I imagine to be Paul's experience. He's on his way to Damascus to persecute the church, meets Jesus, and his life changes instantly. Everything that he thought about the church and Christianity being a hoax, Jesus being raised from the dead and the foundation of Christianity and other things, everything he thought about that changed in a moment of time, an instant, one instant. When Jesus simply appears to him and identifies who he is. Folks, I would suggest to you again that if we come to the place where we see just for a moment who Jesus is, our lives will change too. I'm not talking about being born again. I assume you already are. I'm talking about seeing who he is to change us, to be conformed to his image. I'm talking about seeing him for who he is, the risen Savior. To bring us into a place of right standing with God that we had ever since we asked Jesus to come into our heart. But maybe didn't take advantage of. It'll bring us to a place of power that we've had ever since we asked Jesus into our heart. But maybe didn't take advantage of. Let me ask you this. When we know Jesus delegated his authority to the twelve to cast out devils and to heal every manner of sickness and every manner of disease. Then Luke chapter 10 tells us he did the same thing for the 70. What did that feel like? What did that feel like? See, it's the feelings of weakness that keeps the church from doing what the Bible says Jesus did. The same works Jesus commissioned us to do. It's the feeling of inadequacy that starts as a thought and if that thought is accepted and in most cases at least with people I've dealt with over 32 years of pastoring the church it seems that more people accept the thought and act on the thought 
of a lack of strength or a lack of worthiness in their own eyes. Then take the other route and say, well, since the Bible says it, then this is it and this is true and I'm going to live in it. That's what we want to do. That's what we know we're supposed to do. But I don't see a lot of people doing it. The Bible never says that the disciples ever felt a thing. It never tells us that when they ministered to the sick or came back and gave reports of ministering to the sick or casting out devils. The Bible never says one thing about them feeling powerful. Never says one thing about power going out of them and into somebody else. Never gives us any of those indicators. In fact... In Luke chapter 10, when the 70 come back and they're rejoicing because, and they tell Jesus about what happened, they're reporting back to him. They said, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us in your name. Well, if you go earlier in the 10th chapter of Luke and and read what Jesus said for them to do, he didn't say a word about casting out devils. Didn't say a word. They certainly knew that was a part of Jesus' ministry and part of what he did here on the earth because they were with him and they saw these things takes place and transpire but jesus never said a word to them about casting out devils but it just became natural or or the thing to do when they ran into the devil holding people back so they were rejoicing they said lord even the devils are subject unto us in your name and then jesus said behold i give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you luke ten nineteen. Now, why are they surprised when they come back and tell Jesus that even the devils are subject to to them in his name? Why were they surprised? Well, one thing seems clear to me, and that is when Jesus commissioned them and gave them authority over sickness and disease and sent them out two by two, they must not have or could not have, in my thinking, they could not have felt any power that they didn't have before. If being in Christ and commissioned by Jesus to go and do the same works that he did, which is what he told the disciples. He said, the works that I do shall you do also, and even greater works than these shall you do. If that came with a power surge, then we'd walk in it more easily. We'd be quicker to walk in it. We'd be more willing to walk in it, wouldn't we? I think that's the way that people kind of envision Jesus, whether consciously or not. We just kind of have the idea that Jesus was just pulsing with power. He was kind of like a nuclear reactor, a heavenly nuclear reactor walking around. Everything about him was just... And so, of course, he healed all manner of sickness and disease. But we don't feel like that, do we? What I would give if each one of us had just five seconds of feeling that boom, 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 that doesn't exist. If we just got a five-second glimpse, it'd change our lives. Well, has anybody ever gotten that? Anybody ever gotten that surge of power or that feeling of power, that feeling of authority? To overcome the devil? None of us have. But remember the Bible says in Hebrews 11.6. Without faith. It's impossible to please God. Without faith. It's impossible to please God. If righteousness is what establishes us. If righteousness is what gives us the foundation. And we can prove it that it is through any number of scriptures. John fifteen seven, for example, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you of my Father which is in heaven. Well, if that's not authority, I don't know what is. And righteousness is the foundation of that place. Because abiding in him and him abiding in you has to be 
and is built on the foundation of righteousness. You can't abide in him if you don't know you're righteous. I think that's what's the problem with so many people in their Christian lives. At least it looks this way from the outside. I think a lot of people are trying to abide in him with a feeling of condemnation. And you can't do that. You just can't do that. But when Jesus uses the example in that same 15th chapter of John's gospel, I'm the vine and you're the branches. The branches don't have a different kind of life than the vine or the trunk of the tree. It's the same life. It's the same life force that's in the tree from the roots to the top branch. Well, what is that life? Well, for Jesus, it was righteousness. The Bible says the girdle of of Jesus reigns, the dictate, the dictating force of what Jesus would and would not do here on the earth, the Bible tells us was righteousness. The faithfulness of his reigns, the Old Testament speaks of, is righteousness. So many times people have the idea... And again, I'm not sure it's something they speak out and, and really talk about, but it's kind of an assumption, I guess, that as soon as this body is dealt with, Jesus comes back and we go to heaven, then we'll be righteous. Then we'll know that we're righteous. But think about what that would mean. If physical death adds anything to eternal life, then we've got to credit the author of death which is Satan and not God. Do you understand what I'm saying? I I need to go over that 20 times if necessary to make sure that you understand what, what I'm trying to get across. If physical death, the death of this body, adds anything to us, then we have to credit Satan for the death. It's impossible For death, which is the last enemy, the last one to be put underfoot, the Bible says, it's impossible for death to add anything to us spiritually. It's impossible for death to add anything to our spiritual or Christian experience because then Satan would be in part our Savior and not Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying? Well, then that, out of by simple definition would dispel any notion that when we get to heaven, things are going to be different or better for us where our standing with God is concerned. Impossible. Impossible. So how do we get to the place? How do we come to the place where we accept what the Bible says to be true concerning our right standing with God, concerning the power available to us in the name of Jesus? How do we come to the place Where we live up to what we've been made to be. The only thing that I know the Bible says about it is to speak it. Again, Isaiah 43, 26. God's the one that abolishes and erases our sin. And he's the one that says, put me in remembrance of this. 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 He wants us to speak it so consistently, so frequently, so as to walk in and enter into the righteousness that he's already bestowed on us. And again, we come to the place where the thoughts come to us and the feelings attached with, the feelings of sorrow attached to it, about look at how we've made mistakes, look at the mistakes we've made, look at how we've fallen short. There's something else I think we need to realize, and that is the devil will always try to tell us that we'll never get rid of him. He'll be with us forever. Now, whether, again, whether he says those words to us or through our life experience, we just come to that place where we accept it without really thinking about it. Here's what that would mean. That would mean that in your life right now, In your physical life and in your physical body, there is joint ownership between God and the devil. 
God lives in your spirit. But so many people think that the devil lives in your flesh. Would it make sense in any way whatsoever, just knowing what we know about God's plan of salvation and redemption, would it make any sense whatsoever for us to even consider the possibility that God and the devil are cohabiting in you? Is that even possible? No. Well, then that has to mean that God or the devil, one, owns us. The Bible says God does. Then if God owns us, knowing our experience in the flesh, knowing the temptations, knowing our weaknesses, knowing what we have done, and even seeing, foreseeing in the future what we might do, he still calls you his son or daughter. He still calls you the righteousness of God in him. He still calls you his workmanship. Now, you may be a work in progress, but you are his workmanship. And how can God make anything that's not perfect? Then how could God make anything relative to his plan of redemption for you and me that's not perfect? Now, that seems to be a contradiction in terms, I know. How can it be perfect if we're still trapped by or stumbling over the temptation to sin? How can it be perfect? Because God looks on your heart. God doesn't look on the action of your flesh. And when the Bible says God sees us in Christ, there is no possible room, not even the slightest amount of place for room for sin. None whatsoever. So when the Bible says things like in in Romans chapter 6 and verse 14, sin has no more dominion over you. Not sin won't have dominion over you when you get to heaven. But that right now, because God has erased your sin and transferred you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son by righteousness, it means there's not one trace of sin in or on you. Now, the devil wants to tell you that's a lie. The devil wants to tell you, based on experience, based on your failures and mine, based on the places where we mess up and have messed up, based on that, it can't be true. You can't be perfect in God's eyes. Well, if we accept that, then we're calling God a liar. I would suggest that's not the best position to take. God can't lie. The one thing that the Bible says God can't do is lie. Everything else the Bible says, all things are possible with God and all things are possible with him that believes. But the one thing the Bible says is impossible that God can't do is lie. Something I'm finding out is that the more I declare before God, not before you, it doesn't matter to me, about confessing it before you or anybody else. But as I confess what the Bible says has been done in me and for me, as I declare my righteousness being of him, I find that my heart gets more and more accustomed to the righteous position that I've been given. And I'm finding, it that, finding out that it carries a greater degree of supernatural ability. Things that I used to be hesitant to step out into just becomes natural. I'm finding that the more I declare my righteousness, the more I put him in remembrance of that. The more and more some of these other things start falling off. 
Paul must have understood if he was the author of the book of Hebrews. He must have understood that weights and sins can hold us back. Or else he wouldn't have told us to lay those things aside. Well, how do we lay them aside? Hebrews 3 verse 1 says that we are to consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus. The only thing Jesus has to administer to God on your behalf, as a high priest does, the high priest represents God and man, the the joining together or the go-between between God and man. Well, if that's Jesus' high priestly job is to join us together with the Father, the only thing he has to work with is what you say. He's the apostle and the high priest of our confession. Of our confession. Of our confession. Well, what do we confess? As I said before, so many times people are just in the positions, the hardships and the difficulties that they find themselves in being attacked of the devil. And so we make our confessions to get out of the trouble that we find ourselves in. Nothing wrong with that. But it has to go further than that, doesn't it? Or maybe it, we should say that it should go further than that. God wants your needs met. He wants us all to walk in divine health. No question about that. Just as we concerning our children want them to be provided for, we want them to be healthy and we want them to lead happy lives. And we're willing to do, go to great lengths to provide what we can for our children to have those experiences. But while I'm willing and you're willing to do those things for your children and help them along in life, the thing that we most want is character. The thing that we most want out of our children is to know who they are in Christ and to know God. Isn't that true for you? There's not an either or. I want my kids to live enjoyable lives here on the earth. But I want even more of them to know God. I want them to learn how to believe God. I want them to learn who God is. I want them to be conformed more and more to the image of Christ. Well, then what do you think God wants with us? Jesus said in several places, if we know how to be good to our children by doing these things and helping them out in life, if we know how to be good, children, good fathers to our children, how much more does your heavenly father want the same things for you? A fellow was giving a testimony one time in church. He had come out of a very difficult situation. He was a successful Businessman, actually, he was a lawyer, and he got hooked on drinking. And he wound up being an alcoholic. Over a period of time, he lost the family that he had, he lost his job, he lost the wealth that came along with his job, and was living on the streets and so forth. Well, somebody came to him, somebody got to him, and shared Jesus with him, brought him to church, got him saved, and he started trying to put his life back together. And the pastor, some years later, the pastor wanted him to give a testimony in church about what God had done for him and so forth. And so he specifically said, now I want you to go into some details about how far you fell. I want you, you know, age appropriate, crowd appropriate information certainly. But the pastor wanted him to go into some detail about how things got, how bad things got. And in the middle of his Testimony, and he, he shared with the people. He said, the pastor asked me to tell you this. Otherwise, I would never say a word about this. I'm so ashamed. I'm so embarrassed that this was something I allowed to happen in my life. And so he was giving a testimony. And sitting on one of the, the rows nearby to the front, there was a young girl, 10 or 12 years old, something like that. Came from a good family, brought up in church all of her life. Just sitting there and with such a look of innocence and purity about her 
that in the middle of his testimony, he said, oh, I'd give anything if I could be as pure as this little girl right here. And the pastor spoke up and said, if she hadn't accepted Jesus, you're more pure. If she hasn't accepted Jesus, then you're more righteous. If she hasn't come to the place where she knows God, of course, they, they knew that she did. She's from a family in the church and so forth. But the pastor's point was, purity is not just what you look like. Righteousness is not just what it looks like on the outside. Righteousness is a function of taking a step toward God. And that's the only thing that it can be. God goes to great lengths to tell us that our right standing with him has nothing to do with us. But it's completely according to his plan, his purpose. It's for his sake, not just for ours. It's for his sake. So that leaves us nothing, absolutely nothing to do regarding righteousness other than to accept it. That's it. You can't even maintain it of yourself. Nothing wrong with good works. Nothing wrong with trying to live right. Those are things the Bible says God wants for us. And wants from us. But the reality is we don't even have the power in and of ourselves alone. To maintain our righteousness. That has to be done by the power of God in us too. So instead of stumbling and running away from God. We need to understand. That even when we stumble and fall. God still sees us perfect. He still sees us as pure in his eyes. He still sees us in Jesus. And Jesus doesn't have good days and bad days when it comes to righteousness. It's always the same. It's always the same. So what do we do? Well, the Bible talks about 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 5. Peter said this, wrote this to the church. He said, add virtue to your faith. Now, the word virtue is, uh, can be. It's not the only definition for it. But the best definition I know to give it is experience. In the context of what he's talking about, and it means several different things. Sometimes it means power. For example, when Jesus felt power go out, or felt virtue go out of him into the woman with the issue of blood in Mark chapter 5, he saw, it's obviously talking about power. But when the Bible uses it in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 5, It says, add virtue to your faith. It seems to me the best definition for the word, the best use of the word in that setting and in that context is experience. Add experience to your faith. It's one thing to say you believe something. It's another thing to live it out. And then it says, and add to your experience, to your virtue, that which you added to your faith, add knowledge. Now, what does that mean? It means simply this. We first see what the Bible says. And we choose to exercise faith in it. Believe in the heart and say with the mouth. That brings us to an experience where we'll have to use what we say we believe to overcome the attack of the enemy. And then it goes from experience to knowledge. In other words, when we defeat the enemy with the word of God by the use of our faith, as the Bible directs us to. Then we come to the place where we know how things work. Now, that knowledge is supposed to keep us steady, hold us steady. It's supposed to be a steadying force. For example, if you're facing a financial need and you use the word of God, believe it in your heart and confess it with your mouth, and God meets that need. Now, that's added experience to your faith and brought you to a degree of greater knowledge, a measure of greater knowledge to see how these things work so that the next time you're facing a financial crisis, even if it's a greater number, even if it's a greater need, you have something to rely on. You have something to look back to and say, well, here's how it happened before. 
Here's what God did when I confessed the word. Here's how he came through, me, through for me before. And so it gives us a greater level of faith to walk in. But we should come to the place where we know how the devil works. He works the same way every time. And so when we gain the knowledge of this is how it works, then we're not pacing the floor at night like we might have been the first time when it happened. We're not as liable or subject to succumbing to the thoughts of the enemy that is not working because we've seen it work. We come to the place where we say, well, we know how this thing comes out. We know that God's word is always true. We know that standing in faith and confessing the word concerning what he said he'd do for us or has done for us. We know how that works. So what do we care what the devil says anymore? Well, shouldn't that also be true where righteousness is concerned? Shouldn't we come to the place where walking in faith or accepting by faith the righteousness that God has made unto us, that Jesus has made unto us? Shouldn't we come to the place where we we realize that the feelings of doubt, the feelings of inadequacy, the feelings of unworthiness is just the way that the devil works? But what do we care? We know the truth. Shouldn't that be part of our Christian life too? Folks, I believe that ought to be the biggest part of our Christian life. Think of it this way. What do you want to have more faith in? Healing or righteousness? No contest for me. Because the Bible says that righteousness is the foundation upon which we're established. If we know who we are concerning the righteousness of God... It becomes an easy thing, simple thing to believe for healing. What would you rather have greater faith in? Righteousness or financial blessings and provision? I want righteousness. Because if I know that I'm standing in right stead with my Father God, then believing for finances becomes a cinch. Easy thing to do. And the Bible, mostly Paul's letters, inspired by the Holy Ghost, seems to use this same principle several different times. You know that the Bible says if God didn't withhold his own son from providing redemption and the righteousness that results from that redemption, then how shall he withhold anything? So if we come back to the understanding And not neglect this great salvation that's been provided for us. This redemption. This eradication of sin from our lives. And accept the fact that we are new creatures in Christ Jesus. Perfect in Christ. Perfect in Christ. Whether we've stumbled or not. Whether we've gained the victory in every aspect of our Christian experience or not. God still sees us perfect. He still sees us righteous. He still sees us in Christ. If we understand that, then how hard can it be to believe for material things or physical things? How hard can it be? In righteousness shalt thou be established. Thou shalt be far from oppression Now, that has to mean not just being made righteous, but understanding who we are. Because the lack of understanding of the righteousness of God that we've been made doesn't keep us from oppression. It's standing in it. It's accepting it. It's confessing it. It's declaring it. That brings us to the place where we can say to the devil, how dare you? How dare you bring this against me? I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So it has to be an understanding of righteousness, not just the fact that we've been made righteous. If it was just simply the fact that we've been made righteous and that all of a sudden takes us away from oppression, then no Christian would have any problems ever again in life. But you know as well as I do that bad things happen to good people. 
In righteousness shalt thou be established. Thou shalt be far from oppression, for thou shalt not fear. Notice the relationship between understanding righteousness and fear. In righteousness shalt thou be established. Thou shalt be far from oppression, for thou shalt not fear. And from terror, far from terror, in other words. For it shall not come near thee. It shall not come near thee. Since the Bible says that we're supposed to do the same works as Jesus, I think that means that we can look at a pattern for everything Jesus did in life as an example to follow. Wouldn't that make sense? So that means anything outside of his redemptive work, his sacrificial work, would be an example for us to follow. Don't follow him to the cross. He was sufficient. But everything else he did in life should be an example for us, shouldn't it? Well, the example that he gives us when he was tempted of the devil after fasting for 40 days is very simply that there's a place to stand in him and according to his word. Well, the devil has no place in you and me, either one. Where he'll leave us for a season just like he did with Jesus. One thing Jesus majored on, and it got him in trouble every time he said it. But when he talked about he and his father being one, he's talking about being of the same nature as God the Father. That's the nature that you've been made through the sacrifice of Jesus. You have just as much right to say my father and I are one as Jesus did. Because you've been made and you've partaken of the same righteousness. Now that's the point where people who don't know who they are in Christ start backing up. But I would encourage you, don't back up. Bear down. It should be such a commonplace thing. For us to declare our righteousness before God the Father. Which by the way swings the doors of heaven open wide. Which brings you to the place where you can stand before him. And before his throne. To obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's the thing that brings you the boldness. That the Bible says that we should have. To know that God is our father. And we are of him. There are. Several different places throughout the scriptures. Here's one that we just read in uh, Isaiah chapter 54. The last thing in the verse, uh, what verse is it? Verse 17, I guess. Their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. I've come to the place where I can envision that with God shouting that into eternity. Their righteousness is of me. One last question before we close. What defense does the devil have against that? God said, your righteousness is of him. Not even of yourself. Your righteousness is of him. I'm believing God for our next 32 years to be a lot better than our last 32. I'm believing God for our next 32 years to be a lot more of the power of God in our lives than it was before. I'm looking for the next 32 years to be a lot more when it comes to fellowship and intimacy with God the Father. That's what I'm believing for me and you. Amen. Their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for who you've made us in Christ Jesus. And we are in him, Lord. We are in him. Our righteousness is of you. By the grace of God, it's been given, transferred. Unto us. You have made us righteous. Just as you made Jesus sin. For us. Father we declare. That you are the one that has blotted out. Abolished. Destroyed and erased our sin. 
You are the one that has made us new creatures in Christ. You are the one that has declared that old things have passed away. Everything related to the trace of sin has passed away. And all things have become new. We have become new creatures, a new species of being through the righteousness of God that was made unto us when we were born again. So we declare before heaven, hell, and earth that our righteousness is of you. It cannot change because you never change. It cannot come to an end because you cannot come to an end. Our righteousness is of you. And it's the foundation for everything that we can do and will do in life. We can abide in you because we've been made your nature. We've been made your righteousness. We can call for that which we require in the name of Jesus. Because we're your sons and daughters. Just like Jesus is your son when he was here on the earth and now at your right hand. We declare even as you told us that because we are righteous we have been justified and all of heaven's power is available to us because we've been made righteous we are led and guided by the Holy Ghost he leads us into all reality he guides us into all truth he guides us into the truth of healing He guides us into the truth of blessing, financial blessings. He guides us into the truth of who we are in you, in Christ Jesus. We declare that our righteousness, irrespective of our earthly behavior, our righteousness is of you by faith. We thank you, Father, that the more and more we declare that, the more and more it settles down on the inside of us, the more and more our lives will reflect what Jesus died for us to be. We are your workmanship, Lord. You are pleased with us, even though we're a work in progress. We declare. Our righteousness is of you. Satan, take your hand off our bodies. Because we're joined together with the righteous one. Take your hands off of our finances. Because we're at one with the Father God. Take your hands off of our lives, our loved ones, our families. Because we are the righteous ones of God. We declare it to be so. We demand it to be so. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. I've got something stirring around in my heart about this next year, 2018. I don't know exactly what it is that I'm getting yet. But there's an expectancy. That I haven't had in a long time. There's a. There's a looking toward. Something like I haven't known in a while. As I get more information on it. I'll be glad to share it with you. But at this point. About the only thing I can tell you. That I know for sure. By the Holy Ghost. Is that it's going to be good. It's going to be good. Amen. Let's all stand. Let's close the service by opening our hearts and lifting our hands up to the Lord. Just tell him how much we love him. Lord, we bless your holy name. We thank you that you made us righteous. We thank you that you did not pull back from the terrible cost. The great price that had to be paid. But for the joy set before you, you endured it. We thank you that we are that joy. And the new covenant, the better covenant established upon better promises is now reality in us. Our righteousness is of you. Even as it is written. 
We love you, Father. Holy Spirit, we ask you to guide us into the truth of the Word of God, into the reality of who we are and what belongs to us in Christ Jesus like never before. We commit ourselves and our lives, our bodies, every aspect of our, own, our being. We commit to you, Lord. We surrender to your will. So we bless your name, Lord. We magnify you. We worship you. We exalt you. In Jesus' precious name. Can you agree with that? Amen. Amen.